0: Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we talk about consent, what is the contractual model, why it doesn't work, and what we can do instead.
1: Bonjour, hi, la hi, la goes, hi, Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi. Bonjour, hi so welcome back to fucking canceled
0: welcome back to fucking canceled hey clementine
1: hi jay how's it going I'm In ottawa
0: today yeah we're um, doing this
1: uh long distance
0: yeah so unfortunately i'm in our nation's great capital <laughs> um but uh, that's okay, because with the the wonders of modern technology, mm-hmm. we're making it work, yeah,
1: we're making it work. So, I guess before we get into our juicy episode topic, I wanted to make a little announcement, which is that fucking canceled has moved to Substack, and I'm actually very excited about this, um, because Substack is awesome, and I made the switch from Patreon to Substack for my own personal stuff like a few months ago. And I feel like it was really worth it. And especially for the podcast, I think it's going to be really, really worth it because there's a lot of features on Substack that we can use to grow the podcast and to do different things um, that just weren't available with the previous way that we were doing it. So this is great and it's very exciting. Um, And what it means is that we want you all to go and follow us on Substack. So go to fucking canceled with two L's, remember that, or Canadian, .substack.com. Um, and we're also gonna have the domain name fuckingcanceled.com soon. It's just like I can't figure out the technology, but
0: stay tuned. We'll <laughs> let you know
1: when that happens. But for now Never it's fucking canceled fucking and yeah. you can sign up for free and what that will mean is that you'll get an email when we do a new episode. And if you sign up for $5 Canadian a month, you will be supporting this podcast, which we definitely need because we are an independent podcast. We are totally supported by our listeners. Um, But also there's like a whole archive of writing um, that you can't get anywhere else by me and Jay on the various topics that we talk about on the podcast. And there's also going to be going forward some paywalled um, episodes. So what that's all going to look like is going to be unfolding that so far for the past two years and a bit that we've been doing this podcast, all our episodes have been freely available, um, which we love because we believe in this topic and we want to like get it out there. But also most podcasts have some paywalled content. We're going to join those podcasts so that we can get paid.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Clementine's been doing an amazing job. Um, Putting together uh, the Substack, I unfortunately have been quite busy here in Ottawa, so haven't been able to help much. But I really appreciate what Clementine's been doing. Yeah, um, I, think it,
1: I think it looks great. It's really organized. Yeah. Also, if you go and you look like at in the navigation, there's like a link that says series. And so, like, you might have noticed that our episodes they all kind of like have this little thing in their title, um, like um, identity like crisis, a- cancel club, talking shit with whatever, you know. So these are all series and they're kind of like thematically linked most of them. So mm-hmm. now when you go onto the series page, you can actually like click on the different series and look at the episodes that are there together thematically. So if you're interested in like a certain topic, like cancel culture, accountability, identitarianism, and you're mostly just looking for episodes on those topics, you can find them linked together now on the series page on the fucking canceled sub stack.
0: Yeah. And uh five bucks Canadian is like, three dollars american so you know it's like less than a taco
1: (laughs) yeah and it's a huge amount of work it's a huge fucking amount of work doing this podcast even though we don't even put out episodes as often as other podcasts that we we want to um but definitely getting paid for our work is going to help us do that because both jay and i do a lot of other work um to make money so if we get paid then we can carve out more time in our schedules for this podcast which we would love to do because. We love the podcast. So that's my pitch. Fuckingcancel.substack.com. We'll see you over there.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So today we're going to talk about consent. Um, Yeah. Clementine recently wrote this article called uh, Consent for People's Real Sex Lives Where We Don't Sound Like Robots mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. on her Substack. Um, it's a great article about why Clementine hates consent. Um, <laughs> that is
1: not true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um No. Uh, it's an article that goes over um what clementine calls the contractual model of consent, which is the sort of dominant model in I guess social justice world um and also increasingly kind of everywhere. Um and really analyzes it um from a, a perspective that's grounded in people's real experiences of sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um which I think is really important. And it's something that I've also been thinking about for years, you know. Um, but before we get to into the uh, into the article. Um, can you tell us what you mean by the contractual model and why do you call it that?
1: Okay. So basically, if you are in kind of like lefty world, social justice world, feminist world, queer world, um, or adjacent, you have probably noticed that there is a model of consent that is taught in all kinds of consent education and that is becoming increasingly popular um increasingly widespread and basically this model you know it's sometimes expressed in slightly different ways but it usually includes things like consent is verbal consent is ongoing consent is explicit consent is freely given consent is sober um am i missing any i think that's
0: that's basically it yeah
1: And so the idea is – the idea behind this – And
0: like ongoing? Did you say that?
1: Ongoing, yeah. I said that. Um, And the idea behind this is that basically for each new sex act that happens, um, you should be verbally asking. So like as sex is progressing, as any kind of physical intimacy is progressing, the person who's initiating should be verbally asking – and checking in. Is this okay? Do you want this? Can I do this? Right? Um, And failure to do this, failure to verbally check in at each new stage of intimacy um, is not consensual. Also thrown in there is the idea that people should be sober. So that's basically what it is. The reason that I have a problem with it is that I don't think that it actually maps onto people's real sex lives. I think that most people don't practice this model of consent and actually don't want to practice this model of consent. And that's not because they're just, you know, bad people who don't care about consent, but it's because this model of consent is actually super clunky um, and doesn't feel erotic or hot to most people. Um, And it actually just doesn't match on to what most people do or want to do. So therefore it's not a very um, effective model for that reason.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of a, You know, it's it's something that people are being told to do. And, you know, a lot of people are like, yes, yeah, sure, that sounds really, you know, sounds really good and safe and consensual, right? Um, but in reality, like very few people, I think, are going through like and, and sort of like securing verbal and enthusiastic consent for every single new like thing that they do. And often when people are uh, really into that, um, as you note in your article it can feel very robotic um and also like somewhat somewhat alienating i think it's sort of like it because it, it does feel like a contract you know um, yes and sorry go ahead
1: well the reason that i called it the contractual model is because the purpose of this model like the purpose of this kind of consent is to secure a yes right mm-hmm. it's basically like saying sign here on the dotted line that this is not an assault um Because once you have secured the yes, then you're good to go. You have the green light to go forward. Um, And in this way, this model is actually about securing a yes, rather than what I think would be a better consent practice, which is creating space for any answer, which includes no. And so one of the things that people will say when I say this model is very robotic and it's not very hot as people will be like, yeah, but it depends on how you do it. You can make it really sexy if you just like do it in a playful, like sexy way. Right. Mm -hmm. But actually doing the contractual model in a playful, sexy way is very much like not creating the conditions under which many people are going to feel comfortable saying no. Right. Mm -hmm. Because if you're like flirtatiously and like in a dirty talk kind of way, being like, can I do this thing to you? A lot of people, especially people who are conflict avoidant, who are appeasers, who who don't want to make the other person feel awkward or hurt their feelings, are going to feel really like it, it's going to be difficult for them to say no when the person has framed it in this, like, sexy way, you know?
0: So yeah, it totally. doesn't
1: actually make sense. And, like, an example that I talk about is, like, I had an ex who, like, was about to go down on me, and she was like, do you want me? Like, What the fuck am I supposed to say to that, right? Like, how am I supposed to say no in that situation when she has created it? Like, you know, she's trying to follow the contractual model. She's trying to secure a verbal yes before she does something. But she's phrased it in such a way that, like, me saying no, like, first of all, feels like a total rejection of her. Mm -hmm. Um, Doesn't lead me anywhere else. Like, maybe I want to do something else. Um, And also just, like, totally is a buzzkill. Like, it kills the vibe of the situation.
0: Yeah. And something that you note in your article is that this hyper-focus on securing a yes ignores the fact that there are actually a lot lot of other factors that go into determining whether or not sex is fun or wanted. Yes. Um, And in the article, you go through a bunch of them, but one of the major ones um, that you spend a lot of time on is attunement. Um, and so attunement is kind of like this different framework that you're using to try to think about what consent could look like and, and does look like for people who are, who are having, you know, having um, good and fun and consensual sex. Um, can you tell us about attunement and what it means?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I just want to say that like, not only do I find the contractual model clunky and decidedly unerotic, but I don't think that it is an effective model for securing consent, for actually finding out if what you're doing is wanted. And the purpose of consent is not to just like sign the dotted line. This is not a sexual assault. The purpose of consent is to actually create a lot of spaciousness and deep listening to find out you know, where your desires overlap, whether or not the other person is deeply and truly like into what is going on right now. And so, in the consensual model, I mean, in the contractual consent model, if I were to say, "Can I do this sexual act to you?" and you were to say, "Yes," then basically I'm good to go, and I can do that sexual act, and I can um, feel confident that what I'm doing is not an assault and is not unwanted. But say that I ask you that, and then I'm doing the thing to you, and your body language is like totally like stiff non-responsive, you're quiet, you're not making eye contact, there's a lot of information that is being given to me through your body language that might be contradicting the verbal yes that you just gave me, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the contractual model, it basically gives people like free license to ignore those other messages because they got the yes, so they're good to go. Um, And I think that's a very like bad and actually dangerous way of teaching people to relate to consent because in reality, we're communicating with each other in many, many different ways, only one of which is verbal. Um, And so, and it's actually true for trauma survivors. Like many trauma survivors struggle a lot with verbal consent um, and have a hard time articulating like what they want and don't want verbally. And so may actually kind of freeze up when asked a direct question and maybe give like a nod. Or say, okay, but that's because they don't actually know how to verbalize what they want and don't want. And so they are, um, they're kind of just freezing and going along with something, which is obviously not what we want. So basically, with the contractual model, what ends up happening is we have a cultural understanding that any sex that did not include a verbal ask plus a verbal yes can be defined as sexual assault. And yet most people have sex that does not include a verbal ask and does not include a verbal yes, but is not felt and understood to be sexual assault. Sometimes this happens and it's actually seen as really hot and fun sex. And the person leaves the situation and is like, I had a great time. Other times that happens and the person leaves the situation and is like, I did not have a good time. And because I was not verbally asked and I did not have a good time, I will now define it as sexual assault. But what's the difference in the two situations, right? Why is but- it that in one place where there was, the, there was no asking, no verbal yes, it was still felt as consensual and fun? And then the other one, there was no asking, no verbal yes, but it was felt as unwanted. My belief is that what is missing in the second scenario is not actually the verbal asking and the verbal yes, but it is attunement. And so I'm going to talk to you about what attunement is. Attunement is a term that comes out of psychology and attachment theory, people use it. And basically, what it means is a deep embodied listening. Another person to try to understand what their experience is, what's happening for them, and to be open to that experience, to want to know, and to make it clear to the other that you want to know. And so, when you are attuned to someone, you for sure you it might include some verbal asking, some questioning, some some conversation. um, You know that's often a part of attunement, but it also includes paying attention to body language, paying attention to eye contact, paying attention to changes in behavior, paying attention to the sounds that the person is making, um, paying attention to movement, like how are they moving towards you or against you? And like when we know someone very well, What has happened is we've become highly attuned to them. When you know someone very well, you understand like the minute like differences of their facial expressions, you understand like what they sound like when they're having a good time versus when they're not having a good time. You know Mm -hmm. how to read them, you know how to read their body language. And that is why, you know, in long-term, like happy, committed partnerships, like there's very little verbal. Communication about sex usually because the other like one person understands the other person so well that they can initiate without a lot of asking. Usually, if you don't know someone as well, then you're less attuned to them because you simply don't know them as well. So you don't know how to necessarily read their body language, read their facial expressions, read their cues, um, and you're more likely to sort of misunderstand something. And so in this way, you know there there is more of a need for a verbal component to attunement so that you're basically like getting a map of the territory to better understand what it is that you are reading. So you might need to check in either like before the sexual encounter and or during the sexual encounter to help you to interpret the signs that you're getting from the other person. But it isn't just asking and receiving a yes. Um, it it might include some asking, but like I was saying with the example where you ask, you get a yes, and then the person's body language seems very off to you, like an attuned lover is going to notice that and is going to check in and, you know, be like, well, I'm noticing, you know, that you're f- kind of frozen seeming like, is everything okay? Yeah. And like, you actually might get a response that is like, yeah, everything's okay. And they are still right. being frozen. And a right. attuned lover would be like, Hmm.
0: Yeah. Like, let's take a break.
1: Let's take a break. I don't know if everything's okay. I don't know you well enough to be able to tell if everything's okay. Right. But you might Mm -hmm. get the answer where the person's like, Oh my God. Yeah. Like, sorry. It's just like when I'm like about to come, I'm like really in my head. I'm like closing my eyes, trying to focus on my body. And I don't have a lot of like, I don't move a lot or make a lot of sounds. Yeah. So that response, the attuned lover is going to be like, Oh, okay. This person, when I ask them, they are engaged. They're making eye contact. They have a good explanation for what they're doing. It makes sense. It's, now I can understand that them sort of being quiet and not moving a lot is just them kind of focusing on trying to come. It's not like that they're actually really triggered and like out of their body right now.
0: Yeah, totally. I think that um, in the contractual model, they're they're trying to cover that with the enthusiastic thing, you know. Right. But it's like it's like missing a, a whole number of components, some of which you just went over. You know, um, like how do you determine if someone is enthusiastic? Like, um, also, you know, people are enthusiastic in different ways. Like their enthusiasm looks different, like person to person, right?
1: Totally. Um, and I I also think what the enthusiastic part misses is that consent is a little bit more nuanced than that. For example. Sometimes you might be in a long-term relationship with someone who you deeply love and that person is feeling like horny right now and you're not feeling horny, but you are like open to getting them off. Mm -hmm. And that's not like – like what I'm trying to say is that like consent – Is like kind of layered. Like, there's different reasons why you might do something. So it could be like, I'm doing this because I'm enthusiastically turned on right now, and I like super want to have sex. That would be like an enthusiastic yes. But there could also be like, I'm actually not that turned on right now, Um, and nor am I that interested in becoming super turned on. But like, getting off my partner doesn't feel bad to me. It doesn't feel like something I actively don't want. It's something that I would be, you know, down to do. And like that can also be a truly consensual yes, without being like super enthusiastic. If that makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah. Because I mean, real life isn't like a fourth wave feminist sex toy commercial. You know, mm-hmm. like sometimes people people have sex that they're kind of like eh, about um, without it being like triggering
1: or a violation of yeah, their boundaries.
0: Yeah, like not because they're being forced to, or because they don't want to. You know. They, they're just, you know, not feeling it at the moment, but they're happy to happy to go along with it for various reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. And then there's also the fact that, like, in the contractual model, it doesn't really explain, like, how you can become attuned. Right. And and as you write in your article, um, attunement is something that we ideally learn as children. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, usually from our caregivers and, like, other adults around us. But for many people, that that process is disrupted in various ways, right? Yes. could be by because of abuse or neglect or just growing up in a, an extremely alienated society that, that raises people on screens. Um, and so, you know, some might say, this is all well and good, but if if I'm not like good at attunement, um, how am I supposed to have sex then?
1: And so the thing is, is that like the contractual model does not replace the need for attunement because as I just said, you can get a yes. And if you're not an attuned lover, you may not notice that the other person doesn't want it and you may be doing something that's totally unwanted. And can I just I'll-
0: interject for a second? Yeah. Um it's I'm just like thinking about this, and it's it's actually like such a double bind, I think, for a lot of people who are not good at attunement. Because they can be having sex that they uh, they believe is completely consensual, like, and, and, and because they've even, like, con- um, gotten, like, a, a clear verbal yes. And then later on, like, people – and I've seen this happen, like, a bunch of times in people's different cancellations, you know, where, like, later on, people will be, like, for this reason or that reason, I felt – Um, that I had to say yes, you know, um, sometimes it's just like, they'll be like, because the person was bigger than me or something like that, you know, or like some identity
1: categories.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like I felt, uh, disempowered because of identity mismatches. Um, and that can lead people who like believe that they're doing like absolutely everything right to find themselves on, the other end of, uh, some very like serious allegations. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's just another way that the, the contractual model misses the kind of like real life, um, implications of all this, but go ahead. I interrupted you.
1: So, I mean, basically it's like, if you suck at attunement, I'm sorry to tell you, you have to find a way to get better at attunement. Like there is no way around it because you do need to attune to people in order to have relationships with them. And there are people who have significant difficulty, for example, reading body language. Like, we know that autistic people have a very difficult time often reading body language. And that's like a barrier that they have to this model of attunement that I am suggesting. But the thing is, is that body language or like paying attention to someone's energy and vibes is one part of attunement. And it can be um, like, it can be, um, I don't know why I'm blanking on the word I'm looking for here, like supplemented with verbal like communication as needed, right? Oh, so as I was right. saying, where it's like, you know, even if you don't struggle with reading body language generally, you don't necessarily know what somebody's specific body language means. Like there's some kinds of universal things that we can assume body language means, like maybe most of the time. Um, but you don't necessarily know what this person's body language means. And so attunement is always a practice of learning. It is always a practice of becoming literate in another person's body language, in their movements, in their tone of voice, et cetera. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: For people who really struggle with reading body language at all because they're autistic or for some other reason, then they're going to have to rely more heavily on verbal communication about body language, um... Or verbal communication as like a scaffolding for better, like entering into this situation, but simply asking, like, do you want this? Do you not want this in and of itself is not enough to really find out what another person's experiences of what's happening. Um, and you know, you need to find out, like, is this person good at verbal communication? Is this person good at telling me yes or no? Um, is there other ways that this person, um, prefers to communicate that would be more effective? Right. And so, um, it's, it's like, if you're not good at attunement, you need to get better at attunement. You need to learn attunement. And it's not like, um, it's not like there's only one way to do attunement this model can be adapted to your circumstances, your barriers, your skill level, um, your limitations, your preferences.
0: Yeah. Yo, it's it's so important, man. And like I'm sure a lot of people have had an experience like this where they're sleeping with somebody who, you know, keeps saying yes and keeps saying I feel fine and like whatever, but their body language is totally saying like a completely different thing and it's uh, it can be very weird and hard to know how to how to cope with that how to deal with that you know but i think that yeah like having a practice of attunement and paying really close attention to people's body language and and trying to become literate in it is the best way to um be able to be like okay um even though you're saying yes and you feel fine like i think that i would like to take a break because there's something that feels kind of like um off about this and maybe something that we need to talk about um particularly I think like when uh, you're someone who has intimate relationships with trauma survivors you know yes. who often like often really really struggle with um, with uh, verbally making clear their real feelings about what's happening um, for for obvious reasons right yeah um yeah um, another. Uh, element of all this that you bring up in the article that I think is really important is the concept of shared responsibility. Um, and I think in the contractual model, um, you know, the the responsibility for everything being kosher is uh, placed pretty firmly on the initiatory partner, right? Yes. Um, and there are some obvious drawbacks with this. Um, can you tell us about shared responsibility and why it's important?
1: Yes. So basically in the contractual model, when we actually look at this, what is happening is that it's the person who is initiating the sex act who is responsible for determining whether or not it is consensual through a verbal ask. And their failure to ask, you know, will paint them as, you know, having sexually assaulted someone. Um, But as you said, Jay, like It's even possible that they might have asked and received a yes, and then later the other partner, the partner who is the more receptive partner, um, comes back and says, actually, I didn't want that, and there was various reasons why I didn't feel safe or comfortable saying yes, and so then it still falls on the initiatory partner to have basically failed to pick up on that, failed to attune to the situation well enough to know that that was unwanted, And so very often what this leads to is an expectation that the person who is, um, initiating or being the top is a mind reader. Like they need to be able to tell what the other person is thinking and feeling, even if that other person is not communicating that in any way, shape, or form. And so While I am saying, as I was just saying with the attunement piece, it is the responsibility of the initiatory partner to try to be as attuned as possible and to make as much space as possible for any kind of response. Um, It is also true that, you know, the initiatory partner may fail to be attuned in some way, um, may fail to pick up on what some kind of body language meant or some kind of type of communication meant. And so, in the shared responsibility component, the um, partner who is more receptive also has a responsibility to communicate as clearly as possible to let the other person know if something has changed or is unwanted, right? And so both people are responsible. And I think that this is controversial under cancel culture discourse, because we believe that it is only the person who initiates who holds the responsibility for um, consent, and so like to just to make this concrete, right? I am someone who, for a number of reasons, has very often struggled with being direct, clear, and communicative during sex. Some of these reasons are: I'm a woman, and I was socialized into passivity. I was socialized to be the receptive partner and to basically allow what men were doing to me, um, as opposed to being direct and clear about what I wanted and didn't want. Secondly. I am a trauma survivor. And so being a trauma survivor means that I would very often, instead of you know noticing I didn't want something and then communicating that, I would go into freeze, which would mean I would go nonverbal and I would not be able to communicate to my partner that something had changed and that I was no longer enjoying what was happening. And so like many women and many trauma survivors, this has happened to me so many fucking times where I had a lover who was fucking me and doing stuff to me, and I went into my head and was literally like, I want this to stop. I want this to stop. I want this to stop. But there was nothing that I was doing to communicate that. And on the one hand, I do think you know, that if the lover that I had was being very attuned, they would probably notice that, yes there were changes in my in my body language that they should have picked up on, that they should have asked about, that they should have checked in about, that they should have paused and been like, hey, you know, you were making sounds and suddenly you just stopped or like you were moving your body and now suddenly you're very stiff. I want to check in about what that's about, right? Mm-hmm. That's That's their side of the street. That's their responsibility. But my responsibility is also to communicate something about what's happening. And basically, you know, if I know that I go nonverbal and that in that moment, I'm not going to be able to verbally communicate that I need it to stop. I need to problem solve about that. I need to have a plan B of action. And the reason for this, and this is a very spicy hot take, is that it is also a violation of my partner's consent. If my partner is trusting me to tell them no, you know, if, they're, if they are a relatively like demonstrably safe person who's giving me no reason to believe that they actually want to be violating my boundaries, you know, um, they are trusting me to let them know if I don't want something anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is the vulnerability of topping because the yeah. top is trusting the bottom that they're going to let them know if something is off because most people do not want to violate somebody's sexual consent. And so when they're topping, you know, most people are not intentionally trying to ignore boundaries. Obviously, some people are, but most people aren't. And so they are trusting that the bottom is going to tell them if something has changed. And so as the person who's being more receptive or the bottom or the more like passive participant, that person has a responsibility to communicate if they don't want it anymore. Because if you allow it to keep happening and the person is trusting you to tell them, In a way, you're also violating their consent because they do not want to be doing something that is unwanted. And so if you are someone who knows that you go into freeze, who knows that you have a really hard time verbally communicating in the moment, what would be helpful would be to communicate to your partner about that beforehand and to come up with some strategies for what you're going to do if that happens, right? And so like my tried and true response to this is the double tap you just tap someone twice on the shoulder. And before you have sex with them, you say, hey, I'm really excited. This is hot. Um, Just to let you know, sometimes during sex, I have a hard time verbally communicating. So if I need something just to change or pause or stop, I'm just going to tap you twice on the shoulder. And that's what that means. If you say that, Then, if if stuff happens and you're like in your head and you're kind of freaking out, you're going into freeze, you don't know what to do, you don't want it to be happening anymore, but you don't know how to communicate, you can just double tap. And your partner, if they are a safe partner, is going to respect that and stop. And then it gives you some space to either communicate or to just like stop having sex.
0: Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's the the next thing that you write about in your article, too, is like mixed styles of communication, um, which can involve things like nonverbal signals. or even like code words like some people do like red uh red yellow green um and also it includes um sometimes like just having having a conversation a clear conversation about what kinds of things you're into not into and what kinds of like limits you have before you have sex um mm-hmm. and i think that that is a great practice uh, that people that more people should um should pick up on um that's like common in, in like BDSM world, you know, when mm-hmm. people are doing like scenes with each other where to some degree or another, they're sort of like acting, you know, um, they will often have a pretty detailed conversation first about what kinds of things might be off limits. Uh, you know, someone might be like, you can do whatever you want, but I hate having my hair pulled. So like, don't pull my hair, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, so that gives people like a framework to know like what kinds of things are welcome or not. Um and I think it's, like, a really important practice um, that I try to practice, like, uh, as much as possible, especially with new partners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and because you don't know what they're into, right? And it is, as you said, like, it can be, like, very clunky to sort of, like, ask um, every time you sort of switch things up. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a cool thing to do. I remember, um, I think it was you who told me a story about... Uh, you were talking to like a friend of yours like a and and sort of asked like if they had had a conversation like this with their new like person that they're into and they're sort of like i've never had a conversation like that
1: yeah that that was me i wrote about this in my article um they don't even know their tops and bottoms right which yeah. is about heterosexuals so the heterosexuals you know there's a lot going on with them <laughs> and <laughs> And part of what's going on with straight people is that they don't actually realize that what they are doing is topping and bottoming. And so like what I mean by that for my straight listeners is like in queer world, generally speaking, the terms top and bottom refer to the partner that is like sort of the top is the one who's sort of doing stuff to the bottom, who is the more initiatory partner, who is taking like an active role of like doing things. And the bottom is the more receptive or passive partner who is sort of taking and receiving what the top is doing. Obviously, those are like, you know, that's like a broad categorization and like real life is a little bit more complicated and messy than that. Um, But like in gay male world, like top and bottom means like the Top is usually the penetrative partner and the bottom is the one who is like receiving penetration, but it is bigger than that and also incorporates social roles, right? Um, And I think in lesbian world, it's like, you know, the top is like maybe the one wearing the strap on or who is like using her hands and the bottom is the one who is like receiving that. Um, And, you know, usually for most people, there's like some degree of back and forth and most people are on some level, what is called a switch or a verse, meaning that they take on both roles. But often, you know, for gays and for straights and for queers, there might be one partner who is a bit more of the top, meaning that that partner is the one who is initiating, you know, being more active and like doing more stuff to the other person, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And people like these roles. They think they're hot. They think they're fun, um, but they can also be limiting. So, you know, explore um, with that in mind. But what goes on with heterosexuals is that They have prescribed sexual roles based on their genders. This is something that straight people do. And the straights have a thing where basically the dude is the top and the woman is the bottom. Meaning that the dude usually initiates. He's the one who um, makes the moves. He does stuff. He introduces stuff. And the woman kind of like experiences that and goes along with it and like might, you know, stop or redirect here and there, but is the more receptive partner. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with that dynamic in general, if you think it's hot, but if it's just being prescribed to you unconsciously by heteronormativity, it's extremely limiting. And so this is the problem that the straights are going through. But part of this is that their sexuality is so reliant upon a script, you know, like following these certain steps of that this is what dating looks like this is what sex looks like you know the dude initiates they make out they move on to what they call foreplay which is actually called sex but that's foreplay that is not vaginal penetration with a penis and like then once they've done that they go on to what they call real sex which is the you know the penis vagina penetration followed by usually his orgasm And maybe she gets to come somewhere in there. And then that's at the end of sex. That's what's going on. And if you're in that world, I please, I recommend that you experiment with some other options and possibilities because that's a very narrow and limited way of having sex. It's not the only way to have sex. But because there's this script that they're following and that they're kind of like, that they can expect and depend upon this script, what ends up happening is that they don't communicate very much. Because they're following a script, so the script is, like, substituting the communication. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, this straight friend of mine, yeah, she basically said that she never had a check-in before sex to communicate about what might be on the table, what what might not be on the table, you know, hard limits that she has, things she really doesn't like, ways she likes to be touched, ways she doesn't like to be touched, um, which is something that a lot of queer people, not all, but, like, a lot of queer people, especially, like, lesbians and, like, more sapphic queers, kind of, like pretty much always do. And so that's, that is another form of communication in the mixed communication style, but it's also not the only form. Right. And I think that this, um, like the point is, is that you mix and match the communication styles that work for you and your partner to find the best way to get all the information that you need while still maintaining an erotic connection. Right. And so, you know, we contrast like maybe some sapphic queers who check in and talk about their feelings and talk about what they're hoping for, what they want, their fantasies, their desires before getting into sex with like maybe a cruising hookup that happens between two gay men at a bathhouse where there's actually no verbal communication at all. Mm Because Mm -hmm. it is more the opt out model of consent that we talked about with Zachary Zane um, on a recent episode, where it's basically assumed that, like, you know, you make some eye contact, some meaningful eye contact, some meaningful body language. And then it's assumed that, okay, it's on, we're going to do stuff, the top's going to start initiating. And that the bottom, if the bottom doesn't want something, is going to opt out by communicating a no, um, Mm -hmm. which is a very different model of consent. And neither of these, are um wrong but they're both relying on various forms of communication different kinds of communication and whether or not they go well is really dependent on how attuned the people are and how willing they are to communicate in whatever way makes sense for them whether or not they like what's happening in a way that the other person can hear
0: yeah totally and they're dependent on context too you know Mm -hmm. it's like in in a bathhouse like the context is understood by i mean almost yes. everybody who walks in there um sometimes people are confused but um that yeah it's it's typically operating on some sort of like relatively nonverbal or like low verbal opt-out model you yeah know? and, it's, and I... it's not weird for someone to walk up to you and just start, start like touching your arm or something like that it's totally normal and if you like aren't into it at that moment or you're not into that guy like you you just say like no thanks or not right now or something, you know, then it's yeah,
1: fine. Yeah. I think we talked about this a little bit in the episode with Zachary, but there's an article. I don't know if I'll be able to find it, but if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. But there was an article that was, re- that was written recently that somebody sent to me that was by a trans guy who was talking about being like a trans guy in, you know, gay sex cultures and how basically some trans men, who come out of who used to be lesbians who come out of sapphic sex cultures go into gay male sex cultures and are absolutely shocked because the consent model is so different you know whereas like in the sapphic world it's a lot of verbal it's a lot of verbal processing and it's also like way more focused on this contractual consent model whereas in the gay male world it's very often nonverbal. And an opt-out model where it's expected that the that the bottom or the receptive partner is going to communicate they don't want something if they don't want it. Um, and so some trans men entering into those spaces have, have actually tried to insert the contractual and verbal models of consent into those spaces by being like, what you guys are doing is not good consent, right? And then, mm-hmm. you know other trans guys are like, can you please stop fucking with this because it's actually really hot and I like it. Like, I like being in this context of like opt out consent and like more nonverbal communication. Um, and like, yeah, many fags prefer that. So yeah, yeah it's just totally. like the cultural and context does shape it a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The cultural context of certain spaces and subcultures is really important. It's a form of communication yes. you know? and yes. if you are not in a certain, um, you know, context like that, like, let's say you're just two random, like, heterosexuals who met up at a bar and, like, then they're going home together. You don't have that context. All you have is, like, the hetero script, right? Um, But you don't know how that other person feels about the hetero script. Um, And, and yeah, so, like, it can be a very good idea to build up that communication because, like, I think it's important for our listeners. I mean, I'm sure they get it, but it's important for listeners to understand that, you know, we're not saying that, you don't have to talk (laughs) like about sex or, I mean, you know, you don't have to, but like, there should be some kind of communication. And ideally if there is no obvious context or container such as a bathhouse, there should be, um, especially with a a new partner, some kind of verbal communication. It just doesn't have to be the sort of step-by-step. Can I do this? Can I touch your arm? Can I touch your leg? Can I take off your bra? Kind of uh, thing that is heavily encouraged by the sort of like, uh university um uh consent Mm -hmm. trainer people of the world Um, yeah
1: and i do think that a lot of straight people do have like a context that because i don't want to be too harsh on the script either like i just think that the heterosexual like heteronormative script is very limiting but like any kind of sexual context is very limiting if you're just stuck in that and that's all you do Right. But I do think that there are a lot of straight people who actually do in a way something that's kind of similar to what the gay men are doing in the bathhouse where it's like they are relying on the script as their context where they're sort of just like assuming that like, you know, if they follow this script, then it's okay. And the problem with it, I think, is that in the um, in the gay male context, there's a few differences, which is that. Men in general are less socially trained the way that women are to not communicate their no, right? And so if you are a gay man, you still grew up in a culture where you were treated as a man. And so you probably didn't get the same socialization to never communicate your boundaries that women often receive right? So if you are, like, if say you're a heterosexual man listening to this and you like having hot sex with women and you don't want to do a huge amount of verbal communication, like, you do need to keep in mind that your partner, the heterosexual woman, one, was socialized to have a hard time directly and verbally and assertively communicating her boundaries. And two, may have a pretty extensive history of sexual trauma that leads her to a freeze response. And so because of these two factors, some level of verbal check-in around, how will I know that your body language is telling me what I think it's telling me? How will I know that you want to stop if you want to stop? Like those are like sort of like safety features that you can put in relatively quickly so that then from there on in, you can rely on mostly nonverbal communication if that's what you want. But you know that she knows that you, first of all, want to know if she doesn't like it. And two, that she has some kind of strategy for telling you, which is really fucking important.
0: Which, uh, speaking of context, hot tip for all the heterosexual men out there, uh, women like it when they feel safe. So Yes, it's extremely um,
1: hot. And it's like, if you, part of attunement, I don't think I said this when we were talking about attunement, but part of attunement is actually like even if you aren't fully attuned yet like you're still learning the person like letting them know that you want to be attuned is so important because it gives the spaciousness for them to communicate more because they understand that that communication is welcome right and so it goes yep. a long fucking way if you say something like you know i want you to have a good time like if you're not into something i want to know how are you going to communicate that to me like what how do you like to communicate like mm-hmm. Just yeah. me.
0: Because, you know, if you if you're a woman and you're hooking up with like some guy and he's like not doing any of that, you know, um, you're basically like, okay, well, he's hot, so I still want to fuck him. But now I'm basically in this situation where I kind of just have to like flip a coin and like hope that it lands on the right side, you know. Um yes. that he you know, th- maybe you're hoping that he smacks you around in bed, or maybe you're hoping that he is really, really gentle. And like, you have no, no real way to sort of like talk about that and make sure that what you want actually happens.
1: Yeah. And like part of the shared responsibility is that, you know, if you are more passive, like, cause I'm not saying that straight women were just like fucking permanently. I just called myself a straight woman and that phrasing. Um, but I kind of am sometimes Uh-oh, a straight woman. the truth comes out. <laughs> sometimes I am. That's what bisexuality means. Okay. Um, <laughs> But when I am being a straight girl, you know, like I'm still as equally affected by all of these fucking scripts, you know, like my time in sapphic world does not exempt me from this. And so, like, I'm not saying that straight women or bisexual women who sleep with men, that we have no possibility to change this behavior or to become more verbal or to become more assertive, you know. We oh, yeah, absolutely totally. can. It's just that also, like, like
0: we're, we're, we're talking in super broad strokes here, obviously. Like, we're talking about, like, you know... Hundreds, billions of people. We're talking at a population
1: level for sure. Yeah, but like, still, like, you know, basically, it's like figure out how much verbal communication you can do currently, how much verbal communication you'd like to be able to do, how much verbal communication is like hot to you, and then from there, fill in the gaps. If you don't really want to do a lot of verbal communication, then you need to find other ways to communicate, and you need to let your partner know, like how it is that you're going to do that, so that they're aware if that makes sense. Yeah,
0: yeah totally. Um, so you also write about the the risk that's inherent in sexuality. And um, you talk about how that risk is actually uh, a crucial component of the erotic,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which is an interesting perspective um, that I've heard before and, and makes a lot of sense. Um, and obviously that creates a kind of like a double bind for people who – want to feel safe but they also want the erotic and you know it's it can be hard to balance those two things.
1: Yeah, so for people who are interested in this topic, I highly recommend the writing of Esther Perel. She wrote a book called Meaning in Captivity. It's extremely important, you should definitely read it. Um but basically what she says is that the erotic exists through the experience of like wanting and desiring and like reaching out across the distance towards another who is in many fundamental ways, not entirely known to you. So what that means, just break this down concretely. Another person lives inside their own head, inside their own lives, and you don't get to have a transparent, open access to that. I can't read your mind. I don't know what you're thinking. I don't necessarily know what you're feeling. I know as much as you tell me and as much as I'm attuning to, you know, like I can make my best guess and my best assessment. And like a lot of what romance is, is this like moving towards each other and trying to know each other more. Um, But there's a limit to that. And this is always true. No matter how well you know someone, no matter how long you've known them, no matter how close you are. You are never inside their head. You are never experiencing their experience the way that they are experiencing it. And in this way, they remain fundamentally unknown to you in a certain regard, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. And so basically, you know, not only is this just a true fact, but it's also hot, is basically what Esther Pearl is saying. <laughs> it is the fact that you can never fully know the other. That is fundamental to us being turned on. And so what happens is that like in romantic relationships, in partnerships, in intimate partnerships, there are two drives. There are basically two wolves that are inside of you, right? (laughs) One wants security. And this is like a sense of safety, trust, like dependability, belonging, um, you know, to know as much as you can know about your partner and to know that you can like trust your partner and depend on your partner and know that your partner is consistently there, right? This is a fundamental human need in our close relationships. But on the other hand, the other wolf wants mystery, excitement, spontaneity, unpredictability, novelty, right? And part of what happens in long-term partnerships is that our quest for that safety and security can kill the erotic. And this is why for a lot of long-term partners, they stop having sex or they stop having the erotic flame in their partnership because they've gotten to know each other so well that they have stopped believing that there's any mystery or any unknown there. And what Esther Perel says is that they're wrong and that their partner does not belong to them and that they do not know their partner fundamentally 100%. It's impossible to. And so part of you know, bringing back the erotic spark in long-term relationships is about reminding yourself that your partner is a fucking mystery to you, that your partner has an entire inner world that you don't have access to, and that is always outside of your reach. And when you connect with that, surprise, surprise, it's hot, but also kind of scary. That's the thing. And so the erotic includes this, like the, the, the erotic depends upon it. You need this mystery, this like Otherness, because basically, if you didn't have that, it's basically like you and the other are one person. You're just, it's just you now. Because if there's no differentiation, there's no space between you. And so there's nowhere to reach across, right? This is the enmeshment that happens in like codependent relationships. But even enmeshment in codependent relationships is fundamentally a lie because you're just tricking yourself into thinking that you're one person. You're really actually not. So what this means for the consent stuff that I'm talking about is that in the fact that the other remains fundamentally unknowable to you on a basic level means that there is inherent risk to all interactions, but especially to very vulnerable interactions like sex. Because since you can't read your partner's mind, you can't embody your partner's experience, you cannot actually know what is happening for your partner 100%. You can just do your best to try to find out, but you can't actually for sure know. And so what this means concretely is that no matter how good you are at consent, no matter how much of an attuned lover you are, right? Like Definitely no matter whether or not you ask the verbal question, but even beyond that, if you're doing everything that, you know, I'm describing here, like you're super attuned, you're making it extremely clear that you want to know, you're listening very closely to the changes in their body language, to the changes in their tone of voice. You're like, you know, really trying to orient yourself to their experience. Even then, it is possible that you will miss something Mm -hmm. and it is possible that you may do something that is unwanted. This is a fundamental and inherent risk of all sexuality, and there is no way around it. All we can do is try to mitigate this risk by increasing our capacity for attuned communication, um, by you know figuring out which kinds of communication styles work for us, by, by talking about that, by figuring out like how we're going to do this in the way that works best for both of us. But there's no way to 100% do away with the risk. And so the reason this is so important is that currently, under the current model of consent, the way we think about consent is real fucked up and this actually like connects with cancel culture and like the ways that we think about quote harm because we basically believe that people who commit sexual assault are a certain kind of very bad person right like once you've crossed that line you're a horrible monster and you deserve to be exiled off the face of the earth and have no boundaries and no life right that's what cancel culture does to people who have been accused of sexual assault and you know, the range of things that can be called sexual assault, you know, range from an overt and intentional crossing of someone's sexual boundaries that were very obvious to things like a misalignment of attunement and communication where you actually thought that what was happening was wanted and you were doing your best to try to find out what the other person was experiencing, but you missed something, right? Mm -hmm. And so- what recognizing the inherent risk of sexuality does is it forces us to admit that there is no way for us to completely, you know, step away from the risk of accidentally crossing someone's boundaries, except for to basically never have sex.
0: Yeah, I think this is such an important thing to grasp onto because it lives in reality. You know, it encourages us to encourages us to live in reality. Um, there is an inherent risk to not just sexuality, right? There's an inherent risk to other people. Um, other people are unpredictable. Other people, you, you never know, you know, what's going on with them. Um, any relationship can have uh, its unpredictable ups and downs, you know, people acting out, people uh, being selfish or greedy or self-centered or not thinking clearly about how their actions are impacting other people and so on and so forth. Um, And in order to sort of just be, be right-sized with the universe, we have to on some level accept that there is a risk to other people. And I think that this applies as you have pointed out so eloquently, um, especially to sex and sexuality. Um, We have to recognize that risk and you write something you know a little bit controversial but you're right the only way to have sex responsibly is to recognize and accept its inherent risk um and uh yeah i think that's a a powerful
1: yeah observation i kind of want to like maybe complicate what you just said a little bit because i think that for trauma survivors what you just said might be very confusing and upsetting because it kind of implies that people are chaotic and unpredictable and there's sort of no way to discern whether or not someone is dangerous. Um, And I don't think that's what you mean, but I feel like what you just said could be interpreted that way because Mm -hmm. there are ways to discern the risk level of how dangerous or untrustworthy or unpredictable a person can be, right? Like there is information that we can get to tell whether or not um, someone is trustworthy. And this is something that we actually really need to skill build around for those of us who have complex trauma and really have no sort of inherent felt sense of whether or not someone is trustworthy, right?
0: Yeah. And to be clear, like when I was saying that, I was not thinking about um, abusive scenarios where people are sort of like purposefully trying to control and hurt mm-hmm. others. You know, it's just that like in in our everyday relationships with our friends, our loved ones, you know, yeah. people who are, are totally good people, they can, you know, sometimes do things that that really hurt us that are, that feel so weird. And we have such a hard time understanding why they would do such a thing. And then it turns out they were just like having like a super bad day. And so they said something offhand that hurt our feelings or whatever, you know what I mean? And the point I was just trying to make there is that even in these like super close and loving relationships, there can be these moments of, of hurt, right. That, that will always come up. And that's what it means to live in the world with other, other monkeys.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that what you're talking about there is, I mean, those, those examples are, moments where we are not attuned, right? Moments where our behavior due to like whatever reason, we've we've got stuff going on in our head, we're in a bad mood. We're not really, we're not really being careful in the way we're interacting with another. Um so therefore we're not really attuned to the impact that our behavior is having on them in this moment. Right. Mm -hmm, Um mm -hmm. and I think that it's true that like, you know, all relationships at all times include moments of of what is called in the literature, rupture where a person is turning toward and saying hello. I'd like to attune, and the other person does not attune, um, and this is a rupture. And then yeah. when that happens in relationship, there needs to be repair where the where the attunement is restored. So um, there is always the possibility and the risk of lack of attunement.
0: Yeah, um, to- and in like I, I was just going to say that yeah, like sex is a site of um, or it can be a site of such heightened emotional vulnerability that it's it's a, a particularly important um, area in which to try to be fairy attuned like if at all yes. possible right
1: and i think that it's very important to not be careless about sex like yeah. we can be careless often in our day-to-day lives and obviously when we're trying to live in a responsible and intentional way we would like to decrease the amount of carelessness that we do in general in our interactions with people. Um, but of course when you're stressed and you're fucking running to the metro you're probably being kind of careless about the people around you and the impact that you're rushing around is having on them right um that's normal and that's human I think that in sex we should be as careful as possible in the sense that like we should really be handling what we're doing with care um and even with that like, I think the main point of what I'm trying to make with with the inherent risk thing is that even if we are handling it with as much care as possible due to the fact that our partners inner world remains opaque to us to a certain degree and we can't fully know them even with the most intentional care there is always the risk that we will miss something and so we need if we want to be responsible lovers we need to own that risk we cannot collapse into shame If we find out that we accidentally crossed a boundary, despite our best efforts, you know, Mm -hmm. we need to receive that information in a responsible way that doesn't take on the entire responsibility for it, because remember it's shared responsibility. So our partner also had a responsibility for communicating that information. Maybe they weren't able to at the moment for some reason, they're communicating it now and we have the responsibility to take that on without collapsing into shame or defensiveness, without feeling like we're a horrible person for having made that error. And unfortunately, cancel culture really fucks with people's ability to do this because we've been taught to think in a super binary way that you're either a horrible monster or you're a good person, and so finding out that you accidentally crossed a boundary like sends a lot of people into a panic where their self image is like, okay, now I'm a, I'm a horrible monster, and this can lead to like self-effacing shame or to like defensiveness, right? Yeah. Um, and like defensiveness is not a helpful response because defensiveness is neither of them are a helpful response because they're not attuned, right? Like you're actually getting information and you want to turn toward that information so that you have that information for next time. Like that's the point, you know, so that you know. Oh, right, going forward, this is something I need to pay attention to. Um, but yeah, so cancel culture does not help with this; it makes it worse, basically. Yeah,
0: and and like you write that um, misattunement can be an opportunity, like to find out why it happened. You yeah,
1: know? in in fact, misattunement is part of the process of attunement. Like attunement right. always includes misattunement and then repair. Right. So. Because we don't live inside each other's minds, our best attempts at attunement will always include some degree of misattunement. And the goal is to basically bring the level of misattunement down to the smallest amount we possibly can while still accepting that it will still exist and that when that happens, it's just an opportunity for further attunement to figure out why the misattunement happened and how we can try to prevent that in the future.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, So here's like a... A tougher question like what would you say to someone who hears all this and thinks that it's just um basically a form of victim blaming
1: i mean i honestly find it absurd i find that i find that assertion absurd um and very disempowering Mm. because the reality is like do we want to help people have better sex decrease the amount of unwanted sex um, and, you know, get everybody a lot more skillful in what they're doing? Or do we just want to find bad guys to blame and scapegoat, right? I'm not interested in that. I find it to be boring and not helpful. Like I am someone who has had a lot of unwanted sex. And I do differentiate that for myself from overt sexual assaults In which it was either extremely obvious or relatively obvious that, like, what was happening was not wanted, you know? Um, It's kind of like in episode, um, I think episode six, where we talk about boundaries. Mm, Um, Remember we talked about how certain boundaries are just obvious and you need to, like, you need to talk about those things. Like, if you should assume the boundaries there unless... Stated otherwise. Right. And then other boundaries are less universally obvious and they need to be communicated about. Right. Yeah. So when it comes to sex, this also applies. Right. And like Mm -hmm. one of the Mm -hmm. things that I'm going to just let all the heterosexual men know is that you should not assume that unprotected sex is on the table unless that's been discussed. Yeah. Um, to me, that's obvious, but mm-hmm. sometimes that seems to not be obvious to straight men, and they think that they – and also sometimes to straight women, actually. I'll put that out there as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's true.
1: <laughs> I will also put that out there. I don't know what's going yeah. on with the heterosexuals. But protection during sex against STIs and pregnancy is something that does need to be communicated about, and you should err on the side of assuming that, like, that the person probably wants to use protection for penetrative sex unless – you guys have talked about it right yeah. there's some exceptions to that cultural context things um but yes you need to have a communication about whether or not you're using protection um i also think that a good like basic um rule of thumb or best practice is to assume that you should probably with a new partner like increase the level of communication whenever you're doing something you're escalating something in a major way like for example you're introducing penetration into the situation you should Mm -hmm. probably talk about that or have some kind of way of communicating about that without just assuming that it's wanted right um but what that's going to look like is going to vary from person to person and context to context but the point of what i'm saying is that yes i have had a lot of unwanted sex in my life But I actually had a lot more agency than I realized in those circumstances. And like Mm. there are circumstances where my consent was intentionally and violently overrided. And that was a sexual assault. And there's nothing that I could have done about that. But there's a lot of other circumstances where I basically froze and did not communicate. And my partner was not actually wanting to do unwanted things to me. Right.
0: Yeah.
1: And so I don't think it's victim blaming to point people to the reality that we actually have more power in some situations than we think we have. Because basically what that means is that we just have better outcomes in the future. And like, if it's happened to you that you've had a bunch of unwanted sex and you know, you um, weren't able to communicate at the time and like, you know, you feel really bad about that and you wish that your partner had been more attuned and, and and it sucks. Right. I'm not telling you, Oh my God, you know, that's all your fault and you're just a terrible person or, you know, you don't have the right to feel bad about those experiences. Like obviously those experiences feel really bad and I don't think it's all your responsibility. I think you and your partner both had a responsibility to be more attuned and more communicative in that circumstance. But I think that just saying I have no power in this situation and how is that helping you going, going forward, right? Like next time you're having sex, how is that helping you? I would so much rather teach people the tools to better communicate about their boundaries, to better communicate about their desires, to better be attuned and to better communicate so that we can have better sex and less unwanted sex than just spend my time trying to figure out who's to blame and punish them, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think like in, in any situation in which you're not like completely disempowered and without agency, you do have this responsibility i mean you wrote it in your article you wrote some um, we each have a responsibility to do our best to choose sexual partners who are demonstrating respect and curiosity about our desires and boundaries you know mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of people might be like well yeah you know like i i can't like make my sexual partners be attuned to me you know like and and horrible things have been done to me right and on a certain level yeah it's it's just true that if um if you do have any agency in who your sexual partners are, and it's true that sometimes people don't, right? But if you do, you do have a responsibility on some level to make sure that the kinds of people that you're sleeping with are people who are at least open to trying to yes. um, trying to be attuned.
1: And there's lots of green flags and red flags about this stuff, right? Like, mm. look at how the way the person is treating you in general, um are they receptive are they curious are they asking you questions about what you want you know um those types of things are green flags if they are like constantly interrupting you being rude being disrespectful like those are red flags towards they're probably not going to be a very attuned lover because they're not very attuned to you in your day-to-day life right and i think or they're not
0: interested in being
1: yeah and a lot of um women straight women like damn like whatever. I'm calling myself straight woman again. I'm, I'm aligning with the heterosexual women here. Okay. (sighs) Like we've been treated like shit. We've been treated really fucking bad. Okay. And so like we have low standards. I don't anymore, but for fucking many years I did, you know, because I was used to straight men treating me like shit, really not being an attuned lover at all. And basically using my body to jerk off, like let's be fucking real. And so that's awful it's traumatizing and it's awful. And I think that straight men listening to this, you know, need to understand that a lot of straight women and bisexual women who have sex with men are having these types of very negative sexual experiences fucking regularly. Right. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a lot of straight men who have a lot of learning to do about being a better lover, being a more attuned lover. And also there's a lot of straight men who really need to understand that the point of sex is not for them to get off. Like that's not the point. The point is, is that you are sharing an intimate and erotic experience with another human being and she has feelings and needs to, and you can't just treat her like a fucking masturbation tool. Okay. So sure. that is a real phenomenon. And, but part of this for me Okay. Cause like there's this thing that happens with straight women where straight women submit to this bullshit all the time and then kind of like resent men, but still keep doing it, still keep dating these types of men and having sex with these types of men, even though these types of men are treating them like shit. And so, what I want to say is, oh my God, I'm going to get even more controversial hashtag <laughs> not all straight men because oh. not all straight men are like this. Okay. And I know that might be shocking. Because if you've been out there and you've been on Tinder, you know it's bad. But not all straight men are like this, and there are a lot of straight men who are very interested in being attuned lovers. And so the point is, is that if you want to have good sex with straight men, you need to go and find those men. You need to find men who are at least willing to enter into attunement and communication. Even if they need to do some skill building, that's fine. But if they're just not fucking interested and they're trying to just get off and they're not interested in you at all, like your pleasure, your your perspective, your desires, they're not people you should be having sex with. And you should not just have sex with those men and sort of like hope it's gonna maybe be good sometimes. you know. And that's sad. I understand there's a lot of grief there because it may mean that it's a lot harder for you to find lovers at first. But my experience of this has been is that when I raised my standards and I was like, I'm not putting up with this shit. If you treat me like that, we're not having sex. Then eventually I started to attract more and find more men who actually do treat me well I'm currently having a heterosexual renaissance. And like, that is because I now have fucking high standards when it comes to straight men and I don't put up with bullshit. And so I don't think that's victim blaming. I think that we can both simultaneously acknowledge how fucking shitty it is out there for straight women a lot of the time. While simultaneously being like, you know, we are not powerless in this situation and we do have some agency and we do have control to like choose lovers who treat us with a baseline of respect. So I think that's really important.
0: I think basically the moral of the story then is that tops need to uh, work on their attunement skills Mm -hmm. and um, remember to be open to different kinds of communication. Um, And bottoms need to remember that A, they can choose who they have sex with and Mm -hmm. B, that um, they are also responsible for a good deal of the communication that goes on.
1: Yeah. And they Um, need to find communication strategies that work for them. And I will flip this on its head only slightly to say sometimes the situation can kind of be reversed in a weird way. So there can be a top who is kind of topping in the way that they're, they think they're expected to top. Mm. And they're topping in a way that they think is necessary for them to top. And they are kind of doing what we were just describing as the bottom behavior of not being fully forthcoming that certain behaviors aren't working for them. Right? Yeah,
0: that's absolutely true. And
1: I actually just received feedback about this from a top in my life. And I was like, oh, because it's like sometimes, you know, as a bottom, you might just be like, whoo, I'm having a great time. Like, obviously, whatever the top is doing is something that they want to be doing. Um, And you're sort of just – you're trusting them in the same way that the top is supposed to be trusting the bottom. Like, you're trusting the top. You're trusting that the top is not crossing their own boundaries. But they might be. And so, again, if you receive information about that, about something isn't working, you know, there's something I should have communicated about and I didn't and now I am – Like try to take that information with grace and try to take it with welcome, try to be attuned and say like, thank you for the information, because what I want is to be with you in an intimate and erotic way where we can both show up as who we are and do what we want. And so, you know, I'm not holding it against you that you weren't able to communicate. You're communicating now and let's work with that. And so I do think that it can sometimes be reversed, but generally speaking, yes, this is the situation. Um, And also,
0: okay, like, since we're on this topic, I think, uh, let's, let's, let's get into it a tiny bit more. mm -hmm. Um, just that, like, to be fair to the heterosexual men, um, Mm -hmm.
1: yes. Okay. Let's get into this.
0: Let's be fair to the heterosexual men, um, that for a lot of straight guys stepping outside of the heteroscript, the heterosexual script can be met with, um, uh, humiliation from their, from their female sexual partners. Um, yes, and and if that's happened to a guy like once or twice, um, he might be very unwilling to step outside of that script because it sucks to be humiliated by your sexual partner.
1: Yes. And also the all of the having all of the responsibility for sex, what happens in sex is a huge amount of work. Whether that's like a top, in a queer context, or whether it's like a straight guy, being the one who has to take all the sexual risk, take all the initiation, like do make everything happen is a huge amount of responsibility. And, you know, the thing is, is that like tops, they kind of take on that responsibility intentionally. And hopefully the bottom is being a responsible bottom and like, you know, communicating, but like tops are choosing to take on the initiatory role because it turns them on and because they like it. Straight men didn't have a choice. All right. They didn't have a choice just like how straight women were socialized into passivity and if a straight woman might be more turned on by being more assertive she often like not always of course there's women who break out of this role and there's men who break out of this role but in the general heteronormative bullshit like a lot of women downplay their assertiveness because they believe that it's not hot to their male partners and they believe that they need to be very passive and, and the reverse is true
0: and because they don't know about power bottoms and service tops
1: right and, and yeah. also like you guys don't have to be tops and bottoms. like That's also I mean true. like like a, a heterosexual man might be a bottom. A heterosexual woman might be a top. You might be worse. I don't know. you guys don't know. you need to talk about it. you need to figure it out. <laughs> but like basically, like you know straight men, I, th- I think a lot of straight men long for tenderness. They long for the opportunity to be more passive. They long for the opportunity to like have a woman take control in a circumstance, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of these types of desires are like kind of taboo under heteronormativity. And so a lot of Mm -hmm. straight men are also trapped in this role and don't necessarily want to be in this role, but don't know how to get out of it, you know? So we need to just, we need a lot more spaciousness around our sexual roles and a lot more spaciousness around all of this. Um...
0: But don't you think that that might be appropriating queer culture?
1: Absolutely not. I'm just like so annoyed (laughs) when people are like, oh my God, stop calling. Like, like you can't say that. Like, I'm like, they need to know that they're tops and bottoms. They, that's what they're doing, but they don't know that's what it's called. So therefore it's just, they're doing it totally unconsciously. And I'm like. It, it would be a revolution to me if straight men and women started calling themselves tops and bottoms. It would be a revolution because I'm like, now you're doing it on purpose. <laughs> it's weird that you're doing it and you're not doing it on purpose. If you're doing it on purpose intentionally and with communication and with actual desire, great, hot, welcome to the club. But if you're just doing it because you, that's what like, you know, the gender police told you to do, that's very boring and like very, like it, it's just, it, you're trapped. So like, please yeah.
0: heterosexuals, yeah, rise up. Yeah. <laughs> you have nothing to lose but your chance. Yeah. Um all right, time. Well, this was a great conversation. There's one there's one Michael.
1: There's one piece that you didn't bring up. So I want to bring it up.
0: Oh, oh, okay.
1: It's valuing the erotic.
0: Oh. Yeah. Okay.
1: This is important. So, like basically all the different points that we made, like in this episode, they're there components of a model of consent that I put forward that's called the attunement model and the reason valuing the erotic is important maybe it's it's there's not as much to say about it but i still want to put it forward right because i think that like people have sex because it's hot okay and that matters like the erotic matters it has value in and of itself And so if we create a consent model that the entire focus is only on like danger and preventing danger from happening, this is not an erotic model because it is not valuing like the positive side of what we are doing, which is that we want to have hot sex, right? And so in this model that I'm putting forward about attunement, a component of it is, is that if consent practices ruin things for you erotically, That is a legitimate reason to not want to do them. This is a spicy take, I guess.
0: That is a spicy take.
1: But this is what I believe. Because if I am having sex with someone and they are saying, can I touch your arm? Can I touch your leg? Can I take your shirt off? This actively kills my turn on. I cannot get turned on. This means that this consent practice does not work for me, okay? Mm -hmm. It means that just on the basis of the fact that it really fucking does not turn me on means that it's not an effective consent practice for me because the purpose of consent practices is not just to get a yes and a no and to get information, but it's to facilitate the eroticism. And so if the eroticism is crushed by the consent practice, there's no point to it in the first place because like, basically the answer is no, I guess, because I'm not turned on by your question. (laughs) <laughs> and so, like you see, <laughs> and so what this means is that when two people come together to have sex, they need to find a mix, like a, a mix of communication styles and practices, that both effectively finds out the information that needs to be known, and also is erotic to both of them. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. there can be a mismatch with this, right? Because I'm not saying that wanting to verbally ask it for every single time is inherently wrong or bad or even inherently not erotic. Maybe for some people it is. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But it just might be that if for someone who that's like a necessary type of consent practice for them, they really insist upon it. They don't want to try something else. And that's what's hot. That's what works for them. Then they might not be a good match for me as a lover, right? And that's okay. There might be mismatches and someone might not be a good lover for you. But that doesn't mean that either of you are wrong or bad for having a different kind of consent practice, right? And so I want to put that forward because I think so much of the obsession with like eliminating risk and danger from sex is like decidedly unerotic because as I said, the erotic always contains risk. Um, But that like, if we are going to be creating consent practices that work for us, they need to be consent practices that we find hot or at the very least that does not detract from our ability to feel turned on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think like anybody who sleeps with people who've had like real messy lives, you know, Mm -hmm. knows that um, there's lots of people like for whom contractual consent models, like they simply don't work, like not even in the slightest, you know, because there's plenty of people who like cannot physically cannot answer a straight yes. question during sex with a yes or a no, you yes. know, um, that's the case for a lot of people. And so what are those people just left behind? They're not allowed to have sex ever again. Totally. Um, and also it's like sort of, if they're, if they're like forcing themselves to just like blurt out a, a, a yes or a no, um, and just like working themselves up into, you know, this, this tension. Um, yeah, yeah. It's ruining, ruining the fucking vibe for them also yes. for everyone else. Yeah. Um, and what it's like, they don't, they don't deserve to also have um, the erotic in their life. They don't deserve to have sex that feels fun and hot. Like I think that they do, you know?
1: Yes. And Um, like, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah. So it's just important to find models, um, consent models that actually fucking make sense for real people.
1: I've said a lot of spicy things in this episode and maybe I'll just say one more.
0: Um, more.
1: So we all know that bisexual women are a particular passion of mine.
0: (laughs) <laughs> we do know that.
1: And one thing that happens with bisexual women is that in queer women's like sapphic world, queer world culture, there's a lot more of the contractual model than there is in straight world, as we have discussed, right? Mm. And so in sex with women, like there's a lot of issues that go on with bisexual women trying to date and have sex with women that that cause them not to. But one of them is that when they have sex with women, they find that there's this contractual model that's happening a lot more. And they don't find it erotic. And so, this is part Mm. of the reason why so many bisexual women go back to prioritizing male lovers because the male lovers are not asking them every single time and they find that hotter. And so, like, this is a very spicy and taboo thing for me to say, but it's true. A lot of women are just like, oh my God, like, yes, of course, I want to tell you some basic things about what I don't like, you know, and I want like some basic parameters to have sex within. But actually, I think it's hot when my partner you know, just initiate stuff and isn't verbally asking every single time. And so they get that experience with men. Um, and then they don't get it with women. And so this is part of why they keep returning to men. And so if we want hot sex, you know, we need to build hot sex that works for us. And it is okay to be like, to your lover, to your, to the girl that you think is hot. It is okay to be like, I'm like really into this and I want to have sex with you. And you know, asking every single time doesn't work for me. Like, can we talk about that? Is there a way that we can do consent that like, isn't just about checking in verbally every single time, you know? Um, and that it may or may not be a match, but actually, cause a lot of women feel this way. I think it probably will be a match some of the time. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's, it's a funny conversation too, when it comes up, you know, cause like sometimes people who are really, um, you know really come out of social justice world they really you know they're they're quite certain that everybody wants to do the contractual model and then if you sort of actually talk about it, a lot of people are like oh thank god like i fucking hate it yeah um just don't pull my hair
1: yeah exactly or like whatever don't pinch my nipples um so i just want to do a little plug which is that if you guys I think that what I just talked about is interesting and you want to read about it? I have a zine that is called "The Forgotten Art of Fucking" um, that has a few articles in which I cover basically the stuff that I was talking about in this episode, and I lay out this attunement model that I'm developing. Um, so I think that's like a good, handy resource if you if you do like sex education or you know whatever, and you want like copies of that zine. Um, or if you just want something to use as a resource to talk to potential lovers about, about figuring out consent styles that work for you, you can get that in my shop, which is just at ClementineMorgan.com. And also those articles, I think most of them, if not all of them, can also be found on my sub stack, um, which is also clementymorgan.com.
0: Highly recommend both. Thank you. Um, all right, guys. Well, this has been... Fucking cancelled. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for listening, and uh, don't forget to check out our new Substack.
1: Yeah, fuckingcanceled.substack.com, and please go out there and have hot, erotic sex, if that's what you'd like to do, and please learn attunement skills so that you can do so responsibly. Yeah. See you next time. <laughs> Bye-bye.